samo duže, pa ne vse tukaj mjesto za to niče. Ale... So, good evening, everyone. Uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome you all here tonight on behalf of the School of Slavonic and East European Studies uh, for the inaugural lecture by Professor Jan Kubik, our new director of CIS. Uh, my name is Joe Wolfe, and I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Humanities. And this lecture is part of a series of inaugural lectures in the Faculty of Arts and Humanities Social and Historical Sciences and CIS. And you will all have seen, I think, our brochure picked up a copy with uh, the remaining lectures of the series for this year. Um, and it's particularly fitting that we have Professor Kubik's lecture in the, this year's series, as well as Professor Anne White's lecture later on, as this is CIS's centenary year. Now, the, the order of events for this evening is that I'll shortly introduce the lecture. And after the lecture, the vote of thanks will be given by Professor Jan Zielonka, a very distinguished scholar of European politics and society at the University of Oxford. We're delighted he's able to join us this evening. And then after the vote of thanks, there'll be a reception downstairs uh, to which everyone is invited. Jan Kubik took up his appointment as director of CIS in January 2015, just one year ago. I had to check that because it didn't seem possible that it was only one year ago. Um, he's already made an enormous impression, not just on CIS, but on UCL as a whole. Uh, for example, last year, uh, just about, I can't remember exactly, something like six to ten weeks into his, after he started, he had to present the school's operational and research plan at a planning meeting and greatly impressed the provost and that it was the best of all of the faculty plans presented. And Jan had got his head around it all in you know, one to two months. As a result, um, everyone thinks that they're personally responsible for bringing Jan here and are delighted that they did it and are very pleased with themselves for their role in his appointment and congratulating themselves on their excellent judgment in uh, appointing him to the post, myself included, by the way. So Jan grew up in Poland, where he received his first degrees in sociology and philosophy. Uh, he then moved to Columbia University in New York, where he completed his education with a PhD in anthropology on the topic, The Role of Symbols in the Legitimation of Power, Poland, 1976 to 1981. This style of political anthropology has been at the center of his work ever since especially concerned with the relation between politics and power on, on the one hand and culture on the other, especially in the form of rhetoric, rituals, and art. This has led to a study of political protest and social movements, and also to studies in comparative politics, focusing on Poland, East Central Europe, and the Western part of the former Soviet Union. These three strands of research have led to an impressive array of articles and chapters and also three books of enormous importance and influence. The first arising out of the PhD work, The Power of Symbols Against the Symbols of Power, The Rise of Solidarity and the Fall of State Socialism in Poland, published in 1994. Then two joint works, the first with Eichart, Rebellious Civil Society, Popular Protest and Democratic Consolidation in Poland, 1989 to 1993, published in 1999. And then in 2013, with Aronoff, Anthropology and Political Science, a Convergent Approach. Before coming to UCL, Jan was Professor of Political Science at Rutgers, New Jersey, and he has a continuing position as Visiting Professor of Sociology at the Polish Academy of Sciences in Warsaw. He's taught in South Korea, 
and lectured more or less any way you can think of. Albania, Ukraine, Sweden, Russia, Mongolia, Canada, Germany, Lithuania, the Netherlands, Italy, Spain, Taiwan, Austria, Latvia, Georgia, France, Hungary, and as well as many places in Poland and the USA. And looking through his resume, I noticed that uh, Jan seems to have a particular interest in visiting Florida in January and February of the year. Um, we're so pleased to have Jan with us here in London and at UCL now, and I'd like to invite him to the stage to deliver his inaugural lecture, The Role of Civil Society in Democratization. Jan. Thank you. Does it work? Yeah. Well, thank you, Joe. Uh, I think it was overly generous, uh, but I, am, I do appreciate it. Um, I guess the first thing I want to say is that um, our first speech I delivered at this university was as the new director of SEAS about a year ago. And now, a year later, I'm delivering a speech as the professor. So that means that the director is more important than the professor. So at least I sorted this, this one out. Um, the lecture is based on an ongoing project, uh, which is partially, some parts are finished, some are not. So um, I will share with you a work in progress, which I think is usually the best way to do those things. <clears throat> um, I'm starting with a quote. Is there any students uh, in this room? Uh, cover your eyes and close your ears, uh, or cover your ears and close your eyes. Uh, Stuart Firestein, uh, a, a respected neuroscientist, said that if the question is, what does real scientific work look like? It looks a lot less like scientific method and a lot more like farting around in the dark. <clears throat> so we are, with a, you know, I, 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 well, let's keep this metaphor. We are farting around a little bit. Um, what is important on two uh, fronts, uh, empirically and conceptually. So I will present to you a little bit of, of each side of our project. There's a th thesis in social sciences, political science, you can call it civil society thesis, that a strong civil society is beneficial for democracy. The lacuna is that we really do not know how it works in detail. There's a lot of written, there's a lot of very good, interesting, particularly philosophical work, uh, but there's not much um, in a, a way of detailed studies that would tell us how those, as political scientists like to say, mechanisms work. So what specific features produce what sort of features of democracy it is clearly under-researched? There's also a thesis which has impact for me on, on, on for the talk. Uh, as you will see at the end, I will want to say a few things about Poland. It has become, again, an interesting country. Is civil society in post-communist countries, particularly in Poland, weak? There is a thesis that somehow prevalent in the literature that it is weak. <clears throat> I will argue, and this is a part of our work, that this is simply not the case. It is not weak, it is not strong, it is doing quite fine, um, but um, this is not the topic for today, although it will have some bearing on what I want to say. Uh, tasks for today, brief introduction of the project, uh, definition of civil society, a bit about case selection and basic findings. Conceptual work uh, has two dimensions. We're talking about functions of civil society, and I will skip that part. Um, I don't want to hold you here for two or three hours. Four dimensions of civil society is another way of looking at the problem, and this is where I will give you some results. Um, and then I will talk about Poland. So this, you know, I wanted to talk about those functions, but then I decided that given what's going on in Poland and it is being um, an object of a lot of interest, uh, I will try to say something about the country. The civil society and democratic consolidation in those four countries uh, the project is a multi-method project. Our own database is 20 years of event analysis. We had coders in four countries coding every single issue of two newspapers worth of 20 years. So the database has about 30,000 events in it. Um, Meta-analysis of existing studies. We're doing a lot of reading of a lot of studies that are done using different methods than our own. Basically, it is a problem-driven uh, work. 
And we are trying to generate uh, at the end some theory. So we're not testing an existing theory. There's none really except for this general civil society thesis. What is happening with civil society, particularly protests? That was the basic question. I mean, how does it happen? What is happening there? So pretty descriptive, but we didn't know what is, uh, how it looks like before, I think, this study. And then, well, of course, the question is, so what? What the impact does this particular pattern of civil society activity has and the rest of the democratizing system? Grzegorz um, Ekert, uh, who was mentioned here, uh, and I are responsible for the Polish part of the study. Bela Greszkowicz from CEU and Jason Wittenberg from Berkeley are working on Hungary. Sunyu Kim uh, from Korea University in Korea and Yuhan Chu and Chinen Wu from Taiwan work on Taiwan. So I, I thank them. This is very much a collaborative work. <clears throat> very, uh, one definition only, I, I will not be showing you a lot of text of this kind, but it, it is, I think, important that we have some sense of, of what we're talking about. A civil society, this is, I think, the best definition. Civil society is the realm of organized social life that is open, voluntary, self-generating, at least partially self-supporting, autonomous from the state, and bound by a legal order or set of shared rules. This is really important, and I will get back to this point. It involves citizens acting collectively in a public sphere to express their interests, passions, preferences, and ideas, to exchange information, to achieve collective goals, to make demands on the state, it's very important again, to improve the structure and functioning of the state and to hold the state officials accountable. The concept of accountability, I teach in this room, and my students in this room heard me saying this many times, is my favorite concept. I think it's perhaps the most important concept in the study of politics. How to make sure that those who have power are accountable and how to maintain this accountability. Oh, now, again, many times shown in this room, uh, the way I think about civil society is, is best sort of illustrated in, in this uh, graph, very simple graph uh, of what I call democratic architecture. The civil society sort of sits between domestic society or family kinship uh, sphere and three important domains of any state, economy, system of political parties, and the state or the government itself. In turn, all of this is embedded in the international or transnational system composed roughly of two subdomains, international organizations and transnational regimes, such as UN, EU, WTO, and so on, the World Bank, and transnational civil society, which has played increasingly an important role in, in today's uh, politics. What is important is that those boundaries exist uh, in some kind of real political social sense and they are protected by the rule of law. So the rule of law is the glue that holds this thing together. It is never ideal, it is never perfect, it varies tremendously across time in any given country, but roughly people who are building democracy seriously, they're, they're trying to achieve something like that. So each domain should be relatively autonomous, yet they should communicate with each other. They should have some influence on each other through predictable law-governed channels. Uh, what I often do, and I used it in, in some of my publications, if you just take this, a model of a totalitarian architecture, the, the attempt of the totalitarian systems, that was the Soviet Union, say, under Stalin, was to eliminate all of this. You know, it started with Lenin. Basically, you end up with the state swallowing economy the state is merged with the political society of party state, and the only thing that survives, although Bolsheviks also had some designs to abolish even this institution, is the family. When the system enters the post-totalitarian phase, which is after 56, roughly, so it lasts from 56 to 89, 91, you have, particularly in places like Poland, the emergence of civil society of some kind. I call it an imperfect civil society. Those are dissident groups. At the same time, enormous sector of second economy emerges and it has tremendous influence on the way how people live, how they function, and you know, deliberately I'm drawing this overlap between second economy and this dissident civil society. This is, of course, the civil society which lacks one of the key attributes of the fully-fledged civil society, which is the rule of law or the protection of law. They, they do not have it, so they are um, sort of in danger of all kinds 
um, all the time. <clears throat> okay, so this is a you know, much more complex institutional system than the other two. And again, what holds this together is, well, rule of law, but also something that we may call particularly legal culture, uh, a certain set of cultural norms related to um, how it should properly operate. <clears throat> now, the, the area where I do a lot of work is the democratization as the type of regime change. Roughly what you're saying is that from, we are moving some process from non-democratic to more democratic or less democratic to more democratic system. And I like working with the idea that this process has three phases. They are distinct and they have different logics. First, you know, what some people call liberalization, I, I rather would call it deconstruction because not liberalization suggests that more liberty is brought to the people on the ground before the breakthrough. I'm not sure if this is happening. But the, the construction of the system um, happens because the people uh, challenge the system. This is uh, uh, the Lenin shipyard in Gdańsk, the, a mass in, in the Lenin shipyard. <laughs> Some of you may remember a pretty interesting kind of uh, clash of cultures, if we may put it this way. But that's, that's, that's August 1980. Um, Lech Wałęsa announcing to the people that they're beginning to win concessions from the government. And as Joe kindly mentioned, this was the topic of my first book. So the first book was about the deconstruction, about the challenge. The second phase is power transfer. Power transfer, civil society often plays tremendously important role in, in power transfer. It is either the revolution and some of you may remember the picture. It never happened this way, but this is how we most of us remember because this is extremely powerful. Siri Eisenstein's film, uh, the, the charge of the main gate of the Winter Palace, that was revolution, no doubt. Um, and then the opposite of the revolution is what happened in Poland in 1989, um, uh, which is the round table. Negotiated pact. The paradigmatic cases of negotiated pacts are Spain and Poland, actually. Um, there's a lot of controversy over this, but this, this is not the topic for today. I, I've written about it also. But then you have consolidation. This is what I am interested in today. After the breakthrough, you have the uh, defense system. That much we can say, certainly. And the behavior of the actors and the rules of the game are different. Um, here I, for example, I'll show you the picture of nurses pro protesting against the first Kaczynski government in 2007 in Warsaw. Warsaw nurses obviously are from Radom. In Warsaw, in front of the office of the prime minister who then was um, Jarosław Kaczynski. At least in the first government, he was the prime minister. Uh, and this was the part part of this thing was, the, again, the, another book that I did with Grzegorz Eckert, Rebellious Civil Society. And then, the, in a way, the project I'm talking about now is the continuation of this book. And again, I'm working with Eckert on that. <clears throat> so, cases and some basic findings. I don't want to go through all of this, but if you look at those countries, well, I better do my, use my finger, and they are, there are differences, right? The, the East European pair is, is poorer, quite clearly, uh, but they, all four of them belong to top of the democratization wave, the third wave of democratization, quite clearly, and they all belong to the middle, uh, high middle income group, right below the highest income group in, in most classifications. So they are relatively um, well-to-do, uh, if you take all the countries of the world. In terms of human development index, they rank from about 15, Taiwan doesn't have those statistics because they're outside of the UN system, but roughly it's about somewhere there, the top 20, the East Europeans are in, say, top 40. Um, so there's not, not much variance on, on this um, uh, democracy side of the equation. This, this is a part of the problem. This is still a struggle for us. You know, how to tease out some serious differences among those countries so the patterns we see on the side of civil society can be matched with some uh, variance patterns on the side of democracy. 
you will see how we're, I will show you how we are struggling with it. The revolutions, if you can say this way, the revolutionary change in Southeast Asia begins in 87. Those are Freedom House rankings. They go down roughly after 87. In 88, uh, they are still very high for Hungary and Poland, sl slightly lower. Uh, in 89, then they go dramatically down, down in 1990. So this is a more gradual process than that process in Eastern Europe. It has some consequences, but again, this, this most likely I would not talk uh, about it. Just wanted to give you the, the sense of time. Now, after many, many years of spending a lot of money, this is what we got, right? So, so you, you, you may say, we, you, you guys are nuts and you're wasting someone's money. Um, well, this is the beginning of the story. And um, the patterns here are, you know, it, you cannot make sense out of it. I sometimes cannot make much sense out of it in, well, once I start looking at it and when I start taking into consideration my case study knowledge, which at the moment is way stronger for Eastern Europe. I am able to make sense out of it and in a moment I will show it to you, uh, at least in some examples. But of course, uh, you, you have some differences. You have something going on in Taiwan uh, around this time. You have this enormous eruption in, in Korea right, around the t right at the time of the revolution. And indeed, this is confirmed by the historical studies. There was an enormous mobilization at the time. Um, but number of events is a weak indicator because events may be of all kinds of sizes. So this is, um, I'm not going to have time to talk about it, but a slightly better measure is events times the number of days they lasted. Um, and here you see, uh, for example, this peak in 2004 in Korea. And 2004 in Korea, it's really something. Right? 2004 in Korea is the massive protest uh, to support then the president who was under the threat of impeachment. And the, right before the parliamentary election, which this, this protest brings to power the party supporting the, uh, uh, the, the president, who later is still found to be guilty of, of some uh, machinations and eventually, sadly, five years later, committed suicide, actually. Um, Hungary, those of you who follow Hungary, you will remember the famous taxi driver strike. And this taxi driver strike, a massive strike that basically paralyzed the whole country for a while, is very nicely reflected in our database. And finally, Hungary here, look at this, right? Something is beginning to happen in Hungary over the last few years. Our database is only un until 2011. Uh, but, you know, anecdotally, I, I shouldn't be saying anything beyond 2011, but I think it kind of still remains pretty high. So that's, you know, those are the results. That's that Korea. You know, since, you know, I cannot take forever. Um, so who protests more? More than others? Most, right? The, the average number of days of protest per year. Um, look how much more you have in Korea, so in Taiwan, twice as many, right? Days of protest. So Korea is the leader, as, as which you, you will see plays some role in one of the arguments I will be making. But if you look at the number of events, this is, uh, Taiwan is, is, has a higher number of events. Now, if you put it together, number of events and the number of protest days, which is the lowest, you are immediately beginning to think, ah, that means that there's a lot of small protests, a lot of small protests. Whereas Korea, which has a much smaller number of events, yet the longest number, the biggest number of days, this will be a lot of big protests. Right? So there is something different, and of course we're trying to figure out what is the meaning of the difference, I mean, what kind of function it has for the rest of the system. Poland is sort of right behind Korea, and Hungary uh, in general is uh, uh, here and here, so kind of maybe in a sense not as protesting as others. Others are very kind of large approximations, but the Korea's dominance in the sense, if you can put it this way, is important and the number of small protests in Taiwan is important, something to remember. Uh, well, again, the Koreans. I, I spent some time in Seoul, so I have a lot of pictures, but also, you know, if you spend some time in Seoul, you go walking 
traveling around the city, follow, try to follow the news a little bit, um, there's almost every day there's a protest somewhere. It is extremely well organized, it's extremely pr precisely staged, and um, um, that's how, um, that's an important part of the South Korean uh, uh, politics. <clears throat> so, as I said, the conceptual part of the work was on trying to figure out how can we get a little bit more detailed uh, picture of the civil society and how it can be influencing the, the rest of the democratic architecture. And after a lot of trials and, and kind of uh, various uh, essays that we tried to write about it, we uh, finally zeroed in on four dimensions. We think that th th those four dimensions capture quite a lot. The dominant pattern of civil society's interaction. That's why I showed you that the model of democratic architecture, the, the interaction, the way how those elements work with each other is very important. Particularly the role of protest in this interaction. So that's number one. Number two is the dominant form of civil society or its composition, organization, sectors. It is rather intriguing that in a lot of literature on civil society there's not enough discussion of the fact that in various countries you have different kind of compositions of civil society. In one country, labor unions may be strong. In another, I don't know, church organizations. And, and this is not, uh, it, when you think about it for a moment, it will have tremendous impact on the way this, the democracy can work in a given country, but there's not much work done on this, as, far as, as much as we know. The quality of public space, the quality, the protection that people can have when they are trying to engage in uh, protests uh, or, or um, other types of kind of non-conformist action, if you can call it. So the quality of law that regulates the, the freedom of gathering, freedom of expression, and so on. And finally, something that, again, is not perhaps sufficiently discussed in the literature is ideology. We tend to think that civil society is something good. Civil society is neither good nor bad. It is just the people organized between the kinship networks and the state. Some of them may be on the left, some of them may be on the right, somewhere in the center. Um, there's a constant problem that academics tend to be more kind of left, center left at least, and they do not like to talk to people on the right. Um, you know, so then we don't have enough, uh, not even close, the amount of understanding of those right-wing groups is, is much weaker than the understanding of more left-wing groups. <clears throat> uh, I, I, I do not, I'm, I'm going to almost skip that part, there are some things I, I could talk about, but I need to skip a few things. Dominant pattern is simply this, that first we thought, we started with some ideas, that there will be a contentious pair, and this will be Hungary, uh, Poland, and South Korea, and then there will be more accommodating pair, where there will be not that much protest, and there will be Hungary and Taiwan. It was falsified, and that's the kind of uh, benefit of having the long-term uh, uh, database. Uh, because Poland was initially contentious, later became much more accommodating. Hungary was initially accommodating, and later became quite contentious, particularly after 2006-2008. South Korea contentious throughout, but a bit of a U, kind of like that. And Taiwan contentious, slightly rising, but massive amount of small-scale events. So that's you know, one kind of preliminary finding I'm not sure that it is kind of keeping me, uh, 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 you know, uh, without sleeping at night because we discovered that, but it, that something is there and we are pushing this forward a bit uh, uh, in our further work. Uh, dominant forms of civil society and its composition organization. And that's kind of one of those things that after you do a lot of work, you, you, you see something that Nobody has ever seen. I mean, again, this is the beginning of the work, but, but there are some things that finally we can say about, you know, what are those differences. So if you like labor unions, they are clearly uh, dominant compared with other countries in Poland. Almost 33% of events were organized by labor unions. Now, in itself, we are challenging the existing literature that labor unions are weak. Well, they are not the strongest. Maybe if you look at uh, member, union membership and so on. The union membership is declining across the board in Eastern Europe and throughout the world. But there is something going on if among the protest uh, organizations 
uh, you have the most uh, uh, engaged, uh, this, the, the labor unions. They're also quite active in Korea. Uh, domestic social movements, mm, almost one quarter of events is organized by domestic social movements in Korea. Now, this is important. Political parties and radical political movements in Hungary, together, it's over 20% of events. Big difference than, than in, in other countries, right? Particularly political parties, organizing protests. So that is something, the indication consistent with other things we know um, uh, with what's happening in Hungary, to which I will come back in a moment. Regional local organizations, remember those small protests, large numbers in Taiwan, indeed, almost one-fifth or more than one-fifth are uh, regional small organizations, way, way more than in other countries. And finally, youth organizations, so the mobilization of the young people, uh, way more uh, pronounced, well, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit way, but, but more pronounced in uh, Korea than in other countries. So from here, we can start developing some uh, theoretical expectations. Now we know a little bit more what's happening, as, as we say, on this variable, and then we can start thinking about the possible um, um, repercussions, consequences of this. Just to illustrate this point even more, uh, organizations leading protests in Poland, those are labor unions. So you see they are constantly um, outpacing others. Uh, in no point in time, there were other organizations that were organizing more protests, no year. Than, than the labor unions. And among those labor unions, by far the most active is the Solidarity Union. It's very important to remember, which is now kind of different type of organization than it was under uh, uh, communism and then during the martial law period, but nonetheless, this is the very active um, union. <clears throat> now, I, I will take you through a kind of an exercise where we try to figure out something um, about the quality of those democracies. We, you know, they are sitting, as you know, as I still, if you look at the major international indexes, those countries among the, um, if you take Bertelsmann index, for example, among the countries that are uh, uh, at the top of the democratization wave, all of them are sitting in the first 10. Right? So there's not much variance here. But if you look into the, so we're desperately looking for something. Let's have some data on some variants. We're looking into the World Bank, and we're looking at the rule of law and voice and accountability. Those are two measures, one of the of several that the World Bank is using to assess the performance of various political regimes around the world. Now, Rule of law, this is about perceptions because the methodology is asking people about how you assess, how you see, how it works in a given country, but the rule of law captures perceptions of the extent to which agents have confidence in and abide by the rules of society. The confidence in the strength of the rule of law. The very voice and accountability cap captures perceptions of the extent to which a country's citizens are able to participate in selecting their government and, you know, participating in all kinds of activities. <clears throat> Sometimes this is uh, uh, described as the sense of efficacy. Do, do people think that they are politically efficacious? So the voice and accountability somehow approximates it. So we have those two. Uh, indicators and now see what's happening. When you look at those countries, they are kind of somewhat similar. If you take the rest of the countries of the world, you will have much, much bigger variants. But something is beginning to emerge here. Let's start with uh, uh, South Korea. Rule of uh, law is red. And the voice of an accountability, that means the, the sense of efficacy is systematically below. There's quite a gap, as you can see. Right? So you have the country which has this very strong legal protections, but the country in which people sense that, eh, you know, we, we do not have enough uh, impact, enough influence on the way the, the business of politics is conducted, by and large, right? So this is one country. Another country, which is Hungary, the lines are much closer, but also you see 
this from about uh, 2006. Remember, 2006 is the Prime Minister of Hungary after the one election announces that they were lying. That they won elections by lying. Right? And this is the beginning of the end of the Hungarian left and the rise of the uh, Orban. So this is in going down. This, is, this keeps going down. This is the only country where it, it's going down and other indicators of, of some kind of trouble of liberal democracy. Uh, I'm skipping um, Taiwan for a moment for, for this part of analysis, but here's Poland. The lines are reversed. There's still a gap, but the rule of law is weaker than the voice and accountability. People have a stronger sense of efficacy than, which may be the legacy of solidarity, than the, uh, the, 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 the strength, the, the perception of the strength of the system of laws and regulations. And then you have the dip. And this is the first Kaczynski government, 2005, 2006, 2007. Right? So um, this, this kind of registers uh, those, those assessments, those interviews. This is not the perfect methodology, but the best we have for comparative reasons that, that, that kind of captured that moment. <clears throat> so what would you expect, right? So this is a kind of a nice little bit of social science you can write, right? You expect that the highest and or continuously high magnitude of protest will be in the country that on the one hand offers the best legal protections and on the other experiences the most intense popular sense of low efficacy, lowest voice and accountability, or lower, I should say, voice and accountability, confirmed, right? nice kind of popperian exercise, confirmed South Korea, a country with the highest score on the rule of law and the lowest score systematically on the voice and accountability is the most contentious country in our study. So that's finally like, something that we can latch to. <clears throat> the dominant normative orientation of civil society actors, and here's some interesting things. I will talk only quickly about Hungary and Poland. Um, this is the kind of a new thing that we just uh, produced, social and radical political movements as protest organizers. So this band, the brown band, this is social and political radical movements. Uh, uh, there's a bit of the kind of dirty data here because the, the various types of movement are put together, but the, the radical movements are more uh, numerous. We still need to separate them more from each other. But here you see this slight grow, right? As we go to 2011's uh, in 2008, they almost didn't do anything, and now they are slightly growing, and the intensity of protest is slightly going up. But look at Hungary. This is, this is a much more radical increase of the activity of radical movements and the radical increase in organizing both left and right. So what our Hungarian colleagues did, they look into the protest frames. We have this massive amount of data uh, on what people are actually saying, what the, the slogans are, and we haven't started yet in most, but the, the, in Hungary they started. 2008, 2010, uh, left the government, kind of including uh, binized government, kind of interim government. Look at the number of radical framing, a radical right framing, right? Before, very little, and now in this period, this is a massive attack Radical, uh, rhetorical, symbolic, on the, the government of the left. And the, the outcome is that the, then the government turns, switches to um, Fidesz, and, and the intensity of radical right kind of declines, and right, which is Fidesz, it, its own protest. Remember, the data shows that parties participate in organizing protest in Hungary more than elsewhere. This is mostly... <clears throat> so that's again something to, to play with and, and to uh, move um, forward in the analysis. Now, actually, I, I may slow down even. I, will <laughs> I, was, I eliminated one part of this uh, lecture because I didn't want to go over time, but now I'm kind of a bit more comfortable. Um, so, Poland 2016, well, most of you, if not all of you, know that something is going on in Poland, which is variously described as the, the stumbling, the hiccup, um, or some people would call it even uh, using more radical terms, 
the, the, the new government, now in power less than three months, uh, instituted a number of reforms, changes that are rather broadly seen as an attempt to curtail the liberal democracy in Poland. Hence, illiberal democracy, uh, a la Hungary. As, as um, many of you know, again, I suppose uh, uh, Viktor Orban simply accepted the term. He said, yeah, what's the big deal with liberal democracy? I'm, we're fine with illiberal democracy. Is Poland going that way? If I'm going to be careful, I'll say I, I am still not entirely sure, but early signs are uh, maybe. Right? So the new government shows early disregard for the rule of law, for this properly set up system of checks and balances, particularly by sort of playing with, to put it mildly, with the constitutional tribunal and with the uh, public media, which are now uh, governmental media, or as they say, national media. Right? So the, the kind of a BBC model uh, that you have somehow a public corporation somewhat independent from the government, it's gone. For now, it's basically gone. Of course, they're private media, but you know, we'll see how it goes. Uh, so, given our data, are there any patterns, trends in our data that can help us understand how civil society has worked in Poland since 89 and predict what comes next? So, I will do something that I should not do. Social scientists should not be predicting, but you know, what the heck. This inaugural lecture, let me predict. So, but uh, it will be uh, somewhat reasoned <laughs> based on what I see in the data, right? First question is, is it all about economy, poverty, inequality, unemployment? As people often say, that, you know, those are the main drivers of protest. So let's look at the first kind of comparative basic information, which is the Gini coefficient that measures the level of... Um, uh, inequality in a given country. So if you observe one thing, they, they started dr dramatically uh, away from each other, right? This is Hungary and this is South Korea in 85. And they all kinds of things are happening and then they're very close to each other. This is uh, uh, a pattern that places them sort of in the middle of all the countries of the world. They're not too unequal, they're not uh, particularly egalitarian. They're sort of in the middle. Um, particularly the green line is important for me, for my uh, uh, argument. Poland, around here, which is 2005, uh, uh, since then, it basically stabilizes. So there's a lot of talk that there's one reason that explains the Kaczynski's success is the rising inequality, and I say to this, rubbish. If there's something else, that, that alone cannot explain that because that would be rather bizarre if something constant explains the change on something that changed. Constants cannot change influence variables. Let me put it this way. Um, so what do we see? Number of events, as I said, very imperfect measure, but gives you some sense that there's some decline in events themselves and then it starts going up a bit. Okay, so something changes. Again, labor unions are again beginning to be more active. So yes, something is going on because 2008 is the, the economic crisis. Although, as you may recall, Poland is uh, basically most successful country in Europe dealing with this crisis. This is the only country that didn't have negative uh, economic growth um, even for a moment. <clears throat> and I think Cyprus was another one. But Cyprus is not that perhaps tremendously huge. Um, Poland is bigger. Uh, Poland, numbers of days of protest. What, what is important for me here is that what emerges is one peak, right? Second peak around uh, 98. This one is 92, 93. Much smaller, but a peak around the time of entry to EU. And then kind of whoop, something is happening here. That's around the time of the Kaczynski government. Now we did something, the final thing, which is very, I, I will use it only as illustration um, because this is highly um, imperfect data. Uh, you know, if you had perfect data, what you would try to do is to multiply an event times the duration and times the number of people. And then you would have a nice measure. No, good luck. Nobody has this kind of data. Uh, we are relying, of course, on journalistic accounts. Uh, and, and sometimes they provide numbers, sometimes they do not. 
may have data for 41% of the cases, uh, but you know, it's 5,000 events roughly in Poland, so there's something there. But what, when we did that, the, those uh, three or four peaks became more articulated, right? So this is a signal that four times something uh, uh, drove people more to protest. So what you do uh, in a case like that, you go to case studies, you go to historical evidence, you start reading various accounts and try to figure out if, you know, as we sometimes say, triangulating, we can get a, a sense of what's going on. Uh, what we started with was the, that, you know, take events, take the Gini times 100 in this case because that produces more or less the same scale. Roughly, you could say, all right, right, the, as the uh, inequality was going up, there was more protest. So this kind of very general theory makes some sense, right? And once the, the genie stopped in going up, people stopped protesting. So you could play, say, yeah, well, there is something there. Of course, there's no correlation between this zigzagging and this kind of flatness of that line. <clears throat> so what are those fixed four peaks about? Uh, they're not about economy, but they are about politics and policy making. Very much uh, the same thing uh, as happened, remember, in, in South Korea. This, this biggest peak was not about economy, it was about politics. What are those four uh, uh, moments or, or periods? The fall of the Suhotska government, uh, about which we wrote quite, quite a bit in our earlier book. This is kind of interesting because the solidarity government is brought down by the solidarity labor union. That's uh, one of the interesting things of uh, post-communist politics in the country that is the only country that has a powerful bottom-up mobilization in the form of solidarity. Uh, solidarity at some point had, it, had in it 10 million people. And the legacy of this movement, as I always argue, is, is just huge. And, and we have to, looking at Polish politics, we, we have to kind of always try to figure out what role it plays. The four Buzek reforms, uh, mostly administrative reforms, this was around 98, late 98, Buzek was the prime minister then. Uh, they were about administration, about healthcare, uh, about pensions, uh, and about um, the administrative uh, division of the country. They were controversial and clearly civil society got mobilized and played a role in it. Again, not about economics. Accession to EU, protests were both before and after. That, that moment, uh, kind of predictably, but again, it's politics more than uh, the, the economy, uh, per se. And then the first Kaczynski government, to 2006, 2007, um, I was then uh, teaching at University of Warsaw, and there were a lot of protests. Well, you saw the one by the nurses and the healthcare sector. Most of those protests were organized by the employees of the public sector of the, the state-run uh, um, enterprises uh, of, of the, you know, in the medical field, but also teachers. One of the allies of uh, the uh, Law and Justice Party, the Kaczynski's party, uh, uh, the Minister of Education then was trying to influence the, the way the, the literature and history was taught, and there were massive demonstrations in which I kind of gladly tagged along uh, by teachers through the streets of Warsaw. So that's, that's reflected in this thing. Again, the point, the main point is not economy, really. Uh, certainly not only economy. And final few things. Uh, what you see then is the protest days again, so eventually kind of decline. But if you take, and this Poland has a relatively good um, database on the registration of new associations, you see it went up, and then it is relatively high. If you compare uh, data, comparative data, there's some um, on the European level uh, about the sustainability of civil society organizations. Poland is doing quite well, and is doing way better than any other post-communist country. So you, you have some proof that, you know, as I said, this is not uh, uh, fantastically active, overwhelmingly 
beautiful civil society of the biggest possible size, but it is not weak and it is not inconsequential. As you could see in those four peaks, each of them produced results. It is not that those protests or civil society actions uh, were impotent. They, they, each of them was pretty consequential. Well, it cannot be anything, you know, can you imagine saying this is not consequential when you bring down the government. That, that is kind of consequential. Uh, so this is this uh, kind of what we call institutionalization of civil society, that people move from protest to other types of activity. And finally, what I think is interesting, if you look carefully at the data on those organizations, even after 2008, the number of foundations, which is the kind of bloodline of society, is going up. Yeah, I know some of them may be not giving much money. We don't, it's very hard to find the data, but you know, when you have some data, clearly you have some picture of, of at least somewhat growing strength. And so, conclusions about Poland. Civil society is not weak. There's, number two, a moderating trend from protest to associationism. I wrote it, I cannot pronounce it. Associationism, something related to associations, more of them. Uh, it, and it is, we describe it as a moderating trend. Uh, uh, people are not passive. There's a lot of evidence, I am just going through it, that um, standard measures used by Western researchers do not capture a lot of what we would call informal civil society activity. People do a lot of things, but they do not register them. You know, one thing that recently I discovered, 500,000 Poles are members of voluntary fire brigades. That's a huge chunk of civil society, right? 500,000. If you go to travel through Poland, go to a small town, and you have any kind of communal celebration, the, the, the fire brigades are the center of it. They're, they're kind of you know, social cultural centers. So there's a lot of this kind of activity. When people think about NGOs, and they ask about NGOs, of course they will get an answer, no, we don't have any NGOs, we have a fire brigade, um, and things like that. Um, and finally, engagement at critical political moments, right? Four times and the, when the people decided that something important is at stake, they mobilized. And what is happening now in Poland, people are mobilizing. There's committee in defense of democracy and, uh, you know, I cannot know how successful they're going to be, whether they're going to sort of produce enough checks and balances to control more effectively the actions of the new government, uh, but I am an optimist. But that kind of colors my conclusions, I suppose, but I, my argument would be that due to the fact that they managed to mobilize four times at critical moments, at least four times right, on a relatively massive scale, due to the fact that the spirit of solidarity is somewhat still alive, there's a lot of organizational know-how in the society that there will be a, a, an action, sustained action in the form of the movement that will make the, the life of the government that is kind of radical in its attempt to dismantle uh, liberal democracy difficult. So I will leave you with this slide and thank you. Ah, no questions. Okay. <laughs> if you have questions, then overwind this person. Um, I'm very pleased to be here, although my task is rather tricky. I'm supposed to say a few words of appreciation. This is not what we do in academia. We usually criticize our colleagues. But I'm not supposed to turn his lecture into pieces, of course. <laughs> but I do it with pleasure. Uh, I know him for many years, and I indeed always admire him and his work. And if you ask where he came from, where he grown up, 
Well, you probably don't know the place. And if you know it, you probably would have problems to pronounce it. It's not far away where I've grown up, by the way, although we met much later in America somewhere. You don't know the schools he went to. And had you known those schools, you wouldn't send your kids there. <laughs> and then we are. Inaugural lecture in one of the most prestigious academic centers. Not bad for a boy from Bielsko-Biała. <laughs> and you can ask why. How come? You know, in the Anglo-Saxon world, we are used to you know, people from Vienna doing well in, in this uh, academia in America or Britain, but from Bielsko-Biała? I tried to ask myself, and it was very simple, so it will be short. I think first things which always struck me about him is his modesty. He's very humble. He's very curious, he's open, he wants to listen to others. In short, he's not arrogant, something which is rather rare in academic community. I tell you, after many years in Oxford, it's very rare. <laughs> I think the second is that he he's unorthodox. You know, he in Krakow, as you heard, he studied sociology and philosophy. At Columbia, he studied anthropology. In Rutgers, he studied political science, and this all makes him very unpredictable and original. I mean, this lecture was probably very surprising for those who know his work on culture anthropology. Yeah? And here he flashes all the statistics. I got nervous at the moment. You know. <laughs> but this is also very rare. He doesn't recycle. He doesn't do cloning. He always tries to come with something new. Sometimes it works better than other times. But this is refreshing, and there is nothing but boredom to expect from him. And third, although he looks a lot on institutions and, and, and legal structure, human agency is always there at the center. The civil so why is there civil society? And why we don't talk about democracy as procedures, as something you basically can manipulate? And this is also very important, because individual and the collective of individuals are very often just treated as, as, as a footnote to our study of democracy. And what I learned from him most was that constitutions and institutions are not just commodities which you can just export and apply with similar effect wherever you just want, that they are basically implemented by human beings, which are local, with their own prejudices, their own values, very peculiar sometimes, their own interests. And the end result of these implants of democracy, rule of law, and so on, is very different in different local contexts. And this is something which is poorly understood, maybe because our funding bodies are more eager to give money to statisticians than anthropologists. And therefore, we know so little about informal institutions, with some exceptions, <laughs> than the formal ones. And therefore, sometimes, you know, uh, people don't understand when Kaczynski talks about Ukwat and he immediately wins next elections. Anyway, look, I prepared 45 minutes speech about his various articles and books. If, with your very kind permission, I will come back and deliver it at his farewell lecture when he goes for retirement. <laughs> Thank you very much and enjoy it.
you very much indeed. And let me remind you that you're all invited to the reception. Uh, I forgot to ask where the reception is, but it, uh, it's in the south, just in the cloisters downstairs. So just go downstairs and you'll find it. So thank you very much. Możemy wymienić się e-mailami jutro rano, na przykład. Ja będę w pracy, ale ja, bo ja, ja wiem na pewno, że ja będę w sobotę i niedzielę w SIS. Dobra, to, to, to jutro się umówmy, ale gdzieś na sobotę.
Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> She's my boss. What do you mean? <laughs> Against what? Whoop. Check something. Very interesting. You know, last two days really, yeah. But I was in then roughly two days in Lviv. But I, I managed to absorb quite a bit. It's, are you coming down? <laughs>